Our scripture reading today comes from Acts chapter 8. It'll be verse 1 through verse 25. And Saul approved of his execution. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. But Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. And the crowds with one accord paid attention to what was being said by Philip when they heard him and they saw the signs that he did. For unclean spirits crying out with a loud voice came out of many who had them. And many who were paralyzed or lame were healed, so there was much joy in that city. But there was a man named Simon who had previously practiced magic in the city and amazed the people of Samaria, saying that he himself was somebody great. They all paid attention to him from the least to the greatest, saying, This man is the power of God that is called great. And they paid attention to him because for a long time he had amazed them with his magic. But when they believed Philip as he preached good news about the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Even Simon himself believed, and after being baptized, he continued with Philip, and seeing signs and great miracles performed, he was amazed. Now when the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent to them Peter and John, who came down and prayed for them, that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For he had not yet fallen on any of them, but they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they laid their hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. Now when Simon saw that the Spirit was given through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money, saying, Give me this power also, so that anyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. But Peter said to him, May your silver perish with you, because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have neither part nor lot in this matter, for your heart is not right before God. Repent, therefore, of this wickedness of yours, and pray to the Lord that, if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity. And Simon answered, Pray for me to the Lord that nothing of what you have said may come upon me. Now when they had testified and spoken the word of the Lord, they returned to Jerusalem, preaching the gospel to many villages of the Samaritans. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning, everybody. Man, you think we have a 96 or something this weekend? What's up? Good to see you. Let's pray, and we will get right down to work today. Father, we thank you for bringing us here. We pray that you would pour out your spirit into our hearts so that our ears will be open to our your voice, our Father's voice, that our eyes will see Jesus as our rescuing King, that we would see him as better or beautiful than anyone or anything else in our lives, and uh, Spirit be present so that you would um, give us life according to your word. We pray this in Christ's name, amen. So we're pressing into our series in Acts, and um, uh, if you're new to the faith or visiting somebody today. Uh, what you might not know about the book, book of Acts is it tells the story of the birth of the church. So it's, it's our family history. And what we've been learning in our family history is that we are God's spirit-empowered family. We're God's spirit-empowered family. Here's the idea that we'll see this morning. And just read for us. 
Our Father scatters his spirit-empowered family around the world for the joy of the not yet rescued. Our Father scatters his spirit-empowered kids. So that's what we just heard when Grant read for us, right? Like we heard that together? Uh, But just to make sure it's clear, let me summarize what we heard read from Acts chapter 8. We know from last week, has just been killed, right? Stephen's a young dude in the church. Um, he was responsible for serving, making widows were and so when he's talking about Jesus, and he just runs into a buzzsaw. All of people who hate Jesus says about them, and so they kill him. They throw, and so he was. Stephen's death, spark of a California wild, and it ignited terrible persecution against the church in Jerusalem. Christianity had not spread beyond the walls of that city yet. It was kind of ground zero still uh, right there in Jerusalem. But this persecution threatened to burn the entire thing to the ground. We meet a new character. His name is Saul. What we learn about Saul is that he approved of Stephen's execution. So he's standing there. He's holding the coats of everybody throwing rocks. He's watching Stephen uh, bleed out and die, and he likes it. He wants more of it. He believes that's what Christians deserve. And so he starts ravaging the church. Saul is the wildfire. He goes door to door, uh, beating down doors, serving warrants, dragging men and women, moms and dads, off to prison. He's like the original dog, the bounty hunter, but in all, in all the wrong ways, right? Just chasing Christians down and taking them to jail. It was his mission to destroy the church. He wanted to burn it down. And so the Christians in Jerusalem do what any, they did what we would do. They took a low profile and they scattered for their safety. They wanted to escape Saul's savagery. We read that they all scattered, except it seems like the apostles. So probably the apostles and a small core team or support team to support what was going on there. But everybody else scatters. God's family scatters. They disperse. And as they do, they go about preaching the word. Now, unfortunately, preaching has kind of become too much of a churchy word because all it means is you talk about something, whatever you you talk about. That's preaching, right? You proclaim something. You announce something. So they love Jesus. They believe the gospel. Wherever they scattered, they talked about Jesus, and they talked about the gospel. Now, at this point, we're introduced or reintroduced to a guy named Philip. He was on the same widow care team as Stephen was, so they were probably good friends, probably knew each other well. His world was probably still rocked at the way his buddy died. Well, Philip goes down to a specific city in Samaria. Here's the map for you, just so you get a frame of reference. You see Jerusalem a little bit south of the red. So it's kind of curious that the text says they went down to Samaria, um, when clearly they went north. But what, what the text means when it says it that way is Jerusalem was at higher elevation, and so he went, he went down. He descended in elevation to go to Samaria. He goes there. He, he, he also proclaims to them the Christ. Or he's like, hey, guys, Jesus is your rescuing king. Now, Jesus had spent time in Samaria, so he was a known commodity. He was rejected by most Samaritans. But you remember the story of the Samaritan woman. 
and you remember that he was welcomed and many believed in him. So he had been accepted by some Samaritans, but rejected by most. So Philip goes to a specific city in Samaria. He tells them the good news of the gospel, which begins with bad news, like, dog, you're... You're a rebel. You rebelled against your creator. There's nothing you can do to reconcile yourself to him. He's just, so he's going to judge you for your rebellion. But Jesus, he did everything necessary to bring you back to your father and your creator. That's what he's doing for them. The spirit is present with Philip in incredible power. He's casting out demons. He's healing the lame. He's healing the sick. Right, So much good is happening. And so what we see is many people believe the gospel and they're baptized. And then kind of a summary statement in verse 8, there was so much joy in that city. So much joy because of the gospel. And so what I want to say, man, if you're not yet a Christian, if you're here with one of your friends or for whatever reason you're visiting with us this morning, this is one of the most beautiful pieces of the gospel for me right here. Uh, This connection with joy. The Father sent Philip to this city so that these people who were not yet Christians could receive joy. And that's what the Father had done for us. He sends Jesus. Jesus is actually the source of joy. But in your rebel heart, you chase after other things or other people or maybe even yourself. You turn inward and joy is elusive to you. And when you think you find it, it it grows legs and runs away. That's because Jesus alone is the source of joy, and he came so that you could know joy and that you could know it fully. That's what he says. If you're not yet a Christian, you have to know this. The Father sent Jesus, and now he's sending other Christians so that you can know joy. Man, he's good to you. He's so good to you. And then we meet a guy named Simon. Simon's a curious piece of the story. He's a magician who amazed people with his magic. Now, when we see that word magic, what you need to know is we're not talking about card tricks and sleight of hand. Simon invoked supernatural powers so that he could practice sorcery. So his magic was an expression of demonic power. And this power made him very famous and it made him very wealthy in not only the city, but in the region. So much so that Luke says all the people paid attention to him. He was great. He was so great. Here's what he was known as. His nickname's right here. The power of God called great. Can you imagine? Can you imagine? Right? So that's how he's known in the city. The people were absolutely amazed by him until they were more amazed by Jesus. That's how the gospel works. You were more amazed by yourself or someone else or something until God opened your eyes through his grace and you you became more amazed with Jesus. So Philip shows up preaching the kingdom of God. The Spirit's power is on full display in the city, making Simon's sorcery look like child's play on a Ouija board. It says in verse 13, even Simon himself believed. And after being baptized, he continued with Philip and seeing signs and great miracles performed. He was amazed. So the amazing one becomes amazed by the gospel. And you're like, that's good, right? That's really good. It looks like he's part of the family now. Well, you'd think so. But the story takes a, tw- it takes a turn right here, at least for Simon. So word gets back to Jerusalem. Hey, yo, the Spirit's at work in, in a Samaritan city. Like lots of people are believing the gospel and following Jesus. They're becoming Christians and people are being healed. Uh, they're just full of joy and full of life because of the gospel. And the apostles were like, what? Absolutely not. Not Samaritans. Not a Samaritan city. No way. 
So they send a delegation to verify because they don't believe it. They send Peter and they send John. They go on a little TDY, a little TAD. They go down to check things out. And they show up and they see firsthand, actually, yes, the gospel is blowing things up. People are believing that Jesus is the rescuer. And rebels are being adopted into the family. And so they pray over these young Christians. And as they pray, these Christians receive the Holy Spirit, which sounds like a curious order to you if, if you've been a Christian for, for a little while. So we'll, we'll address that here in a little bit. But Simon sees what Peter and John are doing, and it looks to, to Simon, the magician, like Peter and John have this exclusive access to the Holy Spirit, like they can on demand make him do things so they have authority and they have power and Simon's like it's some kind of like Hogwarts like incantation I can just memorize this thing and say it and so you can imagine Simon's entrepreneurial mind is spinning he sees an opportunity for power and for money and for fame like their magic's better than my magic I want some of that it's like the first Christian MLM or multi-level marketing scheme like right there thanks to Simon so he's like, yo, fellas, give me this power. I want in on this action. And Peter says to him, dog, Simon, may your money die with you, man. And then he quotes some Old Testament. It's never good if you have an apostle quoting Old Testament at you. Like, he's either trying to demonstrate that Jesus is the rescuing king. That's good. Or if an apostle's quoting the Old Testament, more likely he's trying to demonstrate that you're a rebel in need of rescue. That's what he's doing here. He says, Simon, your request makes it clear you're, you're not really part of God's family. Your heart's not right. You need to repent, and you need to seek his forgiveness. And Simon doesn't really agree necessarily. He doesn't offer personal confession here. He just looks back at Simon. Maybe I see him scared here, and he says, no, you pray for me instead. Like, you pray on my behalf because I don't want to die is basically what he says. I don't want what you're saying about me to come true. I don't want to die, and that's it. Uh, Luke, the author, kind of allows it to lack resolution right here. And then we read that Peter and John return to Jerusalem. They're headed back to give a report to the rest of the apostles, like, hey, this is legit. Like, people are actually, Samaritans, believe it or not, are actually believing the gospel and being added to the family. It's crazy. And along the way, no doubt inspired by how the Spirit is working in this Samaritan city, look at what the text says, they stop in many villages of the Samaritans, so either they were getting like tax-free, high per diem, TAD, and they're like, let's stop at all the places on the way back. Or they just really were that inspired by what the Holy Spirit was rocking in Samaria that they're like, we're going to see this happen in every village on the way back. I think that was their motive. So here's our big idea one more time. Our father scatters his spirit-empowered family for the joy of the not yet rescued. Let's take the first half of that sentence. And what I want to do with you this morning is reframe our PCSs, right? We're in PCS season, so this will be good for us. Let's reframe PCS. But also, I just want to acknowledge we're not a military church. We're not an American church. We're not a church for American military members. Like, that's not who we are. Maybe the majority here, but that's not who we are. So we're not just trying to reframe PCS. Let's reframe our immigration, because I'm an immigrant. I didn't PCS here, like, um, and I know we have other immigrants in our family. So let's reframe our immigration and I know that we have some people in our church family who are actually uh, also Japanese citizens. So let's just kind of reframe our citizenship wherever it may reside and the movements that we may take within our country of citizenship. Okay, so let's reframe these things. 
the narrative opens with what? It looks like Saul is committing Christians to prison, right? We could frame it that way, or we could step back and allow the gospel to reframe what's going on, and we could say, no, actually, the narrative opens not with Saul committing followers of Jesus to prison, but with the Father committing followers of Jesus to his mission. I prefer the second way, so let's frame it that way, because I think that's actually what's going on. And you're like, wait, what mission? What are you talking about, John? This is all new to me. What, what are we talking about? Well, if we rewound the tape, 1980s, if we rewound the tape back to Acts chapter 1, Jesus told them what their mission was going to be, right? Acts 1.8. He says this, family, I'm going to leave you, but when I leave, you're going to receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. You're my spirit-empowered family, and you will be my witnesses in where? Jerusalem, so we could say, check, they got that, They're, it's blown up in Jerusalem, and in all Judea, a uh, little check, because Jerusalem was a city residing in what we could, since we're in Japan, let's call it a prefecture, uh, the prefecture of Judea, okay, so a yeah, little check, it's getting out into the suburbs, out into the farm country, so they're getting that, but then it says, and to Samaria, Jews didn't go to Samaria, you, you didn't go there, okay, but Jesus said, this, this is my mission, I'm, I, I am rescuing people out of Samaria, and you're going to do the rescuing. And then to the end of the earth. In other words, God appears as rescuer. He sends the rescued. We saw that last week. And this passage signals there's no place on the planet that he's not sending his rescued family to be about the business of rescuing and adopting others into his family. He's sending you, and he's sending me. Saul is working to shut things down in Jerusalem, but God is working to spread it out beyond Jerusalem. And how, you might ask? Well, look at, we, we just read this together. How is the father sending his kids? How is he scattering him? The father is using persecution to scatter his family. Now, our modern minds don't like this. Like, well, I thought we had a good dad. Like, he would do that to us? Doesn't he, like, he wants me to be happy, right? Part of the problem that we struggle so much with this idea is mostly because we've been taught an Americanized version of the gospel, which emphasizes a hyper-individualized understanding of the Bible, the gospel. It's far less about Jesus' mission and far more about me and my happiness. If you're not a Christian this morning and you're here, this, I just want to point this out to you, too, because this is insane. This is crazy. Your creator who we know as our father, your rightful father too, when you turn from your rebellion. He's waiting for you to come home, okay? But he's not waiting. That's the point of the story. The father is so committed to your rescue as a rebel. He's so committed to you knowing joy in Jesus. He's so committed to you being adopted in his family that he would use persecution to scatter his kids so that they come to your town so that you hear the gospel and believe and are adopted. And that's how serious the father is about you coming home and being part of the family. That's insane. Because most fathers would let a rebel kid who has just given it to him, he'd just let him go. Let him experience whatever they're going to experience. They'll learn. Not, not our dad. This is how serious he is about pursuing you and bringing you back home. Now, you're like, John, I don't know about that. Like, I don't know, you say that, but how would the first generation Christians feel if they were sitting here and they could share how they'd been persecuted and sent out of Jerusalem? Would they agree with you? Well, I think so. 
I think so. Look at this, Acts 4, 24. We saw this a couple weeks ago. This is when they had first started experiencing persecution. They pray, and how do they, they respond? Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them. That was their way of saying, we have no idea what's going on right now. We don't like the persecution, but here's what we know. Jesus, you're sovereign. You're king. Nothing happens apart from your control. Nothing happens apart from your permission. We trust you explicitly with our lives. So you're sovereign over whatever's going on. Acts, and the prayer continues. Truly in this city, they were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel. Check out 28. What does he say? What do they pray? To do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. Crazy. So what they're doing is they're taking their understanding of what happened to Jesus. Jesus was sent for their rescue, for their joy. The Father sent Jesus to his death so that they could be rescued and adopted into the family. And so they're placing that down on their lives, their PCS, their immigration, their scattering and persecution. They're saying, God's sovereign over it. I trust him. And, and whoever's against us is actually carrying out the plan that God wants them to so that our family will scatter for the good of the not yet rescued. Now, verse 29, here's a response. And now, Lord, hey, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal our enemies. And you stretch out your hand to do signs and wonders so that our enemies will be convinced that Jesus is better and that our enemies would actually know life through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. That's them praying, my father is sovereign over my scattering. I trust him and I can be scattered for the joy of other people. Now, our scattering is not automatically missional. Just because we're scattered doesn't mean we're missionaries. There are three key elements to our scattering that makes it missional, and they're in the text. People, proclamation, and power. Notice Philip went down to a city. He didn't hide out in a little safe house in the city. He was out among the people, talked to them. He healed some of them. The Holy Spirit healed them through, through him. He cast out demons. He was among the people. He was present with the people for their good. So that's the first one, present with people. Secondly, proclamation. He was, um, Philip was proclaiming to them the Christ. In other words, he was sharing Jesus with the people that he was present with. Proclamation. And third, power. Not his power, not Philip's, not mine, not yours, but the Spirit's powerful presence. He was working signs, setting people free, healing people, giving authentication to the gospel, right? And giving life through the gospel, those three elements make our scattering missional. Otherwise, as Christians, we're just running, escaping, or in our vocabulary, PCSing or immigrating. So now let's reframe this. Let's reframe our PCS or our immigration with these truths. In our culture, God's family is not being scattered because of persecution, right? I'm not aware of any persecution in America that's significant enough that you would migrate somewhere else, right? Same for Japan. I'm not aware of any that's taking place. In some places, that's definitely happening. We could point to China, the Middle East, pockets of the Middle East, pockets of Africa, pockets throughout Asia. But none of us are in Okinawa because we're being persecuted or we're being persecuted for our faith somewhere else. Nonetheless, you're here. And if your father's sovereign over you, it means he scattered you here. He brought you here. Some of you feel like you've been persecuted, like your monitor, your detailers, you know. It's not, they may not like you, but it's, it's not persecution because of your faith. Plus, God's sovereign over them, too. 
So God scattered you here. Now, why did God scatter us here? Why did our father scatter us to Kadena, Foster, McTee, Courtney, north of the DMZ and Schwab? Like, why are we scattered to these places? The forgotten people down at Kinzer. We are here, verse 8, chapter 8, there was much joy in that city. The father scatters kids for the joy of the not yet rescued. Now, in order to live for the joy of the not yet rescued, we've seen three key elements. I need to be among the people. I need to be proclaiming the good news of Jesus. And I need the Holy Spirit to be present in power for the good of the not yet rescued. That's what makes my, my scattering missional, if you will. So let's ask ourselves some questions. Either for our time here, or some of you are getting ready to move to kind of think about your time forward. One, am I among, am I among the people? Uh, meaning, like, do I know their names? Like, do I know their stories? Do I know their hopes, their dreams, their joys, their sorrows, their struggles, their needs? If I don't, I'm, I'm not among the people. Am I proclaiming the good news of Jesus? Am I actually taking the opportunities that come and creating the opportunities to display for people that Jesus is better and more beautiful? Am I asking the Holy Spirit to be present in power for the good of people, that he would give signs, that he would heal, that he would amaze the unamazed, that he would be present for the good of people who are not yet rescued in? Do I actively pray that the Holy Spirit would be present for the flourishing of the people I live among? That's how we live as God's scattered family, for the joy of others. That's it right there. So there's a new PCS immigration prayer that we could pray in light of this text. Dad, I don't care where you scatter me. I know I told you I really wanted to go to 29 Palms. I know I told you I wanted to go to Minot, North Dakota. I know I told you Vietnam in North Carolina. Like all those things, right? The place. But Dad, I don't care where you scatter me. Like, I don't care anymore. I really don't. As long as you scatter me in such a way that I can be there for the joy of the not yet rescued. Let it be that. You send me wherever you want, Dad. Just send me that way. Let me live that way among the not yet rescued. Help me be present among the people. Help me to be bold to proclaim. And Father, please pour out your spirit so that he's present in power because I can't do this. If you don't work, nothing's happening. You've got to do the work. Amen. So that's my prayer. You've got to write your own. But I think that's how this narrative reframes our PCSing and our immigration or our citizenship in any country. All right, now what I want to do with you uh, as we move towards uh, conclusion is um, we've seen how our dad scatters his spirit-empowered kids for the good of the not yet rescued. I I just want to take a moment and look at the not yet rescued in this passage and allow these characters to kind of force us or help us to examine our own hearts as it relates to the not yet rescued, okay? So let's start with the Samaritans. Culturally, Samaritans were known as priests. And if it sounds racist, it's because it was. Like, it, it was racist. They were known as half-breeds. A part of the reason why was they belonged to, like, some, what would they call, like, northern tribes, the northern part of their people of Israel. And when the, when the Jews were exiled for a while, they were taken captive and sent to other countries and then brought back decades later. Um, the descendants, the Samaritans, their, uh, their ancestors, their family tree, they had remained behind. And they intermarried with a lot of other tribal groups and indigenous peoples there. So their, their, their blood, their Jewishness had really been watered down. 
And so they were called half-breeds. They were also called heretics, right? For There was uh, religious prejudice as well. So basically all I'm trying to say is prejudice between the Jews and the Samaritans ran so deep. And it flowed in both directions. It went back and forth between both people groups. You'll see this um, interestingly in Luke 17, 18. I just want you to know I'm not making this up. So let me show you a little bit. This is actually a quote from Jesus. And he was just using the vocabulary that would have been common to his people at the time, the way that they spoke about Samaritans. So they knew, you know, he was just speaking their language. And here's what he said. He said this, was no one found to return and give praise to God except this foreigner? And he was referring to a Samaritan. Now, that word foreigner could more literally be translated that person of another race. Like that was just how the Jewish people talked about Samaritans. Jesus' parable of the good Samaritan would have been absolutely shocking. You would never tell a story as a good Jewish person with a Samaritan as the hero. No way, that's absurd. You would tell a story with the Samaritan as the villain or the incarcerated one or the lawbreaker, whatever. Never the hero. Furthermore, Jesus' visit with a Samaritan woman, remember that? Highly unusual. You saw the map of Samaria. A good Jewish person, if they were on a road trip, even though it was a direct route and the shortest trip, would never travel through Samaria. They wouldn't even go to that place. We're not going to that place. We're going to be around those people. We've got nothing to do with them. Half-breeds. They would, they would take a trip around Samaria at great cost to themselves. So his visit with a Samaritan woman never happened. And he visited with her for her good. Right? And then he went back to her town, and many people received, believed Jesus, and were made glad. Crazy. Shocking. Good Jews didn't have anything to do with Samaritans because prejudice ran deep, and it flowed freely from both people groups. But guys, Jesus' parables, specifically the Good Samaritan, and his interactions with people, specifically the Samaritan woman, signaled to his followers that prejudice would have no place in his family. No, his family would be comprised of all races, all ethnicities, all peoples in one family. Not different families to accommodate different people groups. One family united around Jesus and his gospel with full equality, full equity. Not a family that diminishes difference, right? We're not talking about, a, this is, I know this is a popular phrase, not a colorblind family, not a culture-blind family, but a family whose eyes are wide open to the differences that God has created and sees those differences as beautiful and welcome because, and, and so we would look at each other as different and say, I want you in my family. I want more of you in my family. I want our family to be as diverse as we can be for the context that we live in. We don't want sameness. Our unity is around Jesus and the gospel, and every bit of diversity that we have in this family displays the glory of our creative Father. The more diverse we are, the more able we are to demonstrate who our dad really is. The more diverse we are, the more beautifully we're able to demonstrate the reconciling power of the gospel. If any family should be diverse and reconciled to each other, it should be God's family. Because if we can't be, what does that say about the gospel? And if God's family can't be reconciled to each other in all of our diversity, 
Where should we expect real and true reconciliation with equality and equity to take place? Nowhere. It's just a charade. It's just a game. It's got to be in God's family. I see your differences. They're beautiful. I want you in my family. Don't assimilate. Don't be like the majority culture. Your differences help us display the Father and the gospel to a watching world. And it's beautiful. We want it. This is why one church is better than two in any town. It's a shame in almost every town in the States, there are different churches, not based on theological beliefs, but based on race or ethnicity or cultural expression. We dilute the gospel. We diminish the truth of, of who our dad is. It's, it's tragic. But Jesus prayed in John 17. What did, what did, you remember what he prayed? What did he pray? What did he pray? Dad, let him be one. I want one family. United around me, nothing. Not race, not ethnicity, not politics, not cultural expression, not region of the world, not state, nothing, no other identity. Jesus and the gospel, full diversity and full equity in that diversity because it beautifully displays the, the, the truth of our dad and it beautifully displays the power of the gospel. Jesus prayed for that to happen. So we've got to pause right here and just ask this question. I wonder, who's your Samaritan? Who's my Samaritan? Where's the place you won't live? Where's the neighborhood you will never rent a home or buy, a, buy real estate? That might be your Samaria. What street won't you drive down? What exit won't you get off? What people group won't you associate with? What political expression or political grouping of people do you despise? That might be your Samaritan. We're not necessarily talking about race and ethnicity, though we could be. Who's your Samaritan? Who's mine? Jesus, now, some of you hear that and you're like, man, I, I don't have prejudice. Well, guys, just be really careful. Jesus has the only human heart ever unstained by prejudice. That's it. Jesus alone could say he didn't harbor any prejudice. The rest of us need that prejudice to be exposed and rooted out before our hearts are fully on mission with Jesus. They've got to be reshaped by the gospel. Now, some of you are sitting here and like, man, John, I don't feel that, man. I don't really appreciate you insinuating that I have prejudice. You sound like you sound really culturally informed right now and not gospel informed. I got it, and I'm sensitive to you, and I appreciate that. I want to show you how this is deeply rooted in the text, though, okay? Can I do that? I just want to show you how I'm not making this up. I'm not culturally informed, and it is flowing out of the gospel. Look at this. When I say that our hearts have to be fully reformed by the gospel, and by that I mean prejudice exposed, prejudice rooted out, and heart reshaped to love people in my Samaria, here's what I'm, here's what I'm saying. Who did the apostles send from Jerusalem down to Samaria? Who went? Peter and John. Okay. John had to pray over these new Christians in Samaria for their good, right? Did you know there's only one other recorded prayer that John offered to pray over the Samaritans? And do you're not ready for this. Here you go, right here. It's in Luke 9, 54 to 56. They were in Samaria. Jesus had just been rejected by a Samaritan village. And so James and our boy John right here, they saw what happened and what they pray. Lord, Jesus, you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and kill them? Because we'll do that for you. We will rain down hell so that your enemies are destroyed. Can we do that for you? They were eagerly asking for this. These were deeply prejudiced young men. 
they wanted this entire city to burn. God rained down hell. Now they're in the same village and they're praying, Father, rain down help. Give life. That's crazy. That's an insane transformation. The prejudice had been exposed by Jesus. It was being rooted out by Jesus. And now their hearts, shaped by the gospel, were postured for the good of people that they formerly would have nothing to do with. It's beautiful. Now, normally the Holy Spirit is given at the moment of belief. We, we know that through all of Scripture. You repent, you believe, you pray, you ask the Father for rescue in Jesus, and he gives you the gift of his Spirit. You're my daughter, you're my son, and here's a sign that you're in the family. But he didn't do that for the Christians in the Samaritan village. He was waiting. He was waiting for the apostles to come down. Why? Why? Why was he waiting? I really believe he was waiting for a couple reasons. First, I believe he waited for the Samaritans, like for their inclusion in the family, so that these Jewish Christians would lay their hands on the shoulders of their new brothers and their new sisters, formerly people that they would have nothing to do with, and that they would look them in the eye and say, you are a full member of our father's family. There is no second class in our family. Same family, full equality, same church. You don't have to assimilate. You're not becoming a more Jewish person. You're a follower of Jesus, adopted and fully loved, forever kept and perfectly accepted just like us. Same family, eye to eye. We, 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 not a separate church. We're in the same family. So for the Samaritans. I think he also waited for John and Peter. This was a huge step in their gospel reshaping. This was an opportunity for them to live in the reality of the gospel where they could go to a city that legit guys in, they wanted to call down hell and destroy this people. But now they have evidence that their heart's different. Like they're new, they're new young men. They're only a couple years older now. But now they're in the same city and the father gives them the opportunity to reign down life-giving help through the spirit what a beautiful story of redemption all your prejudice can be rooted out all of it and you can live for the good of others and for god's fame it's beautiful that transformation was so complete did you see how luke concluded this section he said on the way back to jerusalem they stopped along the way preaching the gospel to many villages of the samaritans they stopped in every samaritan village that they could for the good of the people living in those cities. That's incredible transformation in a heart. So guys, we need to ask another set of questions. Is my heart being reshaped that way by the gospel? Are my prejudices being rooted out? Is the gospel cultivating enough humility in my heart so that I'm willing to say out loud, yes, in my lifetime, I have har I am harboring prejudice. Am I willing to be humble enough to pray to the Father and say, I may actually be unaware of some prejudices that do exist in my heart. Please show them to me because I want nothing to do with them. And I want to be part of your family where there is full equity and full inclusion and full equality. I want you to send me to places that I have formerly thought are my Samarias. Jesus, make us aware is what the gospel, the spirit through the gospel is imploring us to pray. I think I said we're starting to wrap up a little while ago. Here we go. Here we go. Simon's sad, confusing, cautionary tale, guys. He believed, right? It looked like Simon believed the gospel, that he was amazed. 
But Luke seems to point out in the story that the people were amazed with the gospel, but Simon seems to be more amazed by the, the signs, like better magic. And so Peter has to say to him, dog, you're not in the family. You are demonstrating that you want God for personal gain, for personal power, for self-advancement. You need to repent. You'll know kindness, but we don't really know if he does. He, he asks for prayer, but he doesn't personally confess. And Luke leaves it unresolved. And I think Luke leaves it unresolved because there's so much unresolved tension in our own hearts. And every reader of this narrative for all time reads this narrative with that same unresolved tension. Mixed motives in our hearts. There's something of Simon in each one of us. These mixed motives as we follow Jesus... And to that tension, this story gives you an invitation. Repent and be forgiven. That's it. That's the beauty of the gospel. Simon could have repented and received mercy. And guys, this morning and tomorrow and the next day, we can repent and receive mercy. It's our father welcomes us saying, Dad, I think I have mixed motives in my heart. Like, I know I need you. I know I want you. But yo, all this mixed motive, so much insincerity, so much personal gain, so much selfishness. Could you forgive me? And could you expose that? I repent of it. Help me want you. And you know how the Father responds every single time you repent? Sure, son. You bet, daughter. I'm so glad you're in my family. Here's more mercy for your rebel heart. He'll never say anything different for those who are in his family. Guys, beautiful. There's something of Simon in every one of us, and there's something of the Samaritans in each, each of us. We read through the story that Simon had amazed the people of Samaria. They were paying attention to him. He was amazing them with his magic. But when they believed Philip as he preached the good news about the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus, they were baptized. That's Luke's way of saying their amazement was reoriented. They were amazed in Simon and some really good thing until Jesus came along and they were captivated by his better beauty. Jesus is better. Their amazement was reoriented. That's what it means to be a Christian. That we are reoriented initially and then daily reorienting on the beauty of Jesus and the reality that he is better than me and anything else my heart can desire, whether that be a person or a thing. He is better. That's what it means to be a Christian. Now, for again, for those of you who are visiting, for our non-Christian friends who are, who are with us, I just want to say to you that Jesus is better than whatever or whomever is amazing your heart right now. We all have hearts that are easily amazed, captivated, amazed by somebody's magic. Jesus is better than whatever or whomever's currently capturing your heart. And for those of you who are already followers of Jesus, you just need to remind, the Spirit wants us to be reminded that Jesus is better. Your rebel tendencies have lied to you this week. Your heart wants to be the amazing one like Simon. Our hearts are so easily captivated, amazed by the magic of someone or something else. And guys, that thing or that person becomes your functional savior. Whatever you're amazed by, whomever you're amazed by, that's your Jesus. That's your Messiah. That's who you're looking to for joy, happiness, identity, satisfaction. So can I just ask you, who is amazing your heart right now? Whose magic has captured you and your eyes? What is amazing your heart right now? That's your Savior. But that Savior is insufficient. Can't rescue you. Can't reconcile you to God. Can't give you true joy. Can't 
can't change your heart. But Jesus is kind. And you can confess, and I can confess. We can believe the gospel again. We can ask the Spirit to reorient our hearts on this, that Jesus is better. Jesus, you are better. Please make my heart believe that. So why don't we pray and actually confess that now. Jesus, our hearts have been captivated by so much this week. So many other people, so many other things, so many desires. I want to be Simon. I want people to think I've got magic. I put my hope in other people. I put my hope in myself. I put my hope in things. Dad, we have people here visiting with us this morning who have never seen that Jesus is better or more beautiful. Their hearts are not yet captivated. So, Father, for those of us who are followers of Jesus, we confess together. We, we know Jesus is better. We know he's more beautiful. But, Dad, you know our hearts are so weak and fickle. So by your grace and through your spirit, reorient, capture our amazement, and help us believe. Make our hearts believe Jesus is better.